Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It is chapters 14, verses 13 through 21, and can be found on page 15 of the New Testament in your Pew Bible. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in the boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Loving God, may it not be my words, but your words that are heard this morning, for we are yours and here to serve you. Amen. As Chris said, I am a seminary student, and um, I've just finished my second year. And a lot of my friends are also interns serving churches this summer. And we've come to know this Sunday as Intern Sunday because we've all been asked to preach. So with that being said, let us start off by using our imaginations a little. Imagine yourself standing in the desert of the ancient Near East. It's hot, and the wind keeps blowing the hood that is protecting the back of your neck from the sun. The wind is also blowing sand around you, and the sand is sticking to your sweaty skin. You're squinting as you're staring off into the distance, pondering all of the things that could happen in your life. Your loved one has just passed away, and your loved one was the provider in your family. As you're thinking about what could happen next and the scenarios that you come up with, none of them seem to have a positive outcome in the end. You see, after your husband passed away, instead of families bringing you food and casseroles and flowers and kindness cards, debt collectors and creditors started to come around. You didn't realize that your husband owed people money, so this is kind of a shock to you. The first time a debt collector came, you opened the door, you greeted him with kindness and love, and you settled on paying that debt with the rug that was in your floor. Then the creditors came again, and again, and again, until you traded almost everything in your house in an attempt to settle this debt. It starts to get so bad that any time you see a stranger on your street that you get nervous and overwhelmed and frustrated because you think they're going to ask you for money that you don't have. 
And you also know that because you're a woman in this ancient society, that you're pretty vulnerable, and your children are vulnerable too. You think it's a bit odd that women can't really hold property in your world, but they can still pay the debts of their husbands. You think bringing that up won't really do you any favors, though. As you're looking for a sense of hope, you're not sure there is any. You remember that you can make clay pots, but this is the ancient world here, and that's a pretty common trade back then. Even though you can make these pots, there's no way you'll be able to make that many and sell that many to come up with that much money. You're out of things to sell to make these payments. And unfortunately for you, you live in a society where slavery is an acceptable form of payment. Now, this thought of slavery upsets you, and it's very scary. The thought of being enslaved to someone and serving them for the rest of your life, it's daunting and terrifying and horrible, but you would do it if you could. However, since you're frail and kind of older for the ancient world, your work isn't really the work that the creditors want. Instead of your work, they want the work of your two children, one eight and one eleven. As you see, they're a better deal for the creditors. And that thought makes the hair on your back stand up out of fear. It's pretty much your worst nightmare. After all, you are their mother, and you feel a sense of duty to protect your children because they're yours. You made them, and you love them. Now, you didn't know that your significant other was in debt, and you know that the money they're asking for, you cannot possibly come up with. You've already sold off most of your belongings, like your extra clay pots, your goats, your chickens, your lambs, the benches that you used to sit on, and even the rug on your floor. It's all gone, except for this very small thing of oil. You're running out of options and places to turn, so you get more and more afraid with every minute as you can't imagine anything that could fix your situation. Your spouse is dead, your protector is gone, and your friends aren't around anymore because you have lost your place in society. As your last source of hope, you go to the gate of the city in the hopes of just maybe finding one of those God-fearing men that maybe had something to do with your husband. As you walk through the town, it seems like you're being ignored. No one is looking at you or really acknowledging you. You're feeling totally alone. And everywhere you look, you get the sense that someone is just waiting to take advantage of you. While you're approaching the gates, the dust from the ground is all over your feet. It's windy, and you're tired, and you're feeling totally alone. It seems like no one will help you or do anything to save your children from this looming fate of slavery. As you're finally reaching this city gate, there's this very mysterious man. He's wearing some tattered clothes, and he probably looks a little sketchy in today's society. Now, you don't really know who this man is, but something about him tells you that 
he's safe and okay. And it turns out that he is one of those God-fearing men that your husband knew. It's the prophet Elisha, with an S-H, not Elijah. You explain to him your predicament, and he tells you to collect all of these vessels, not just a few, and to pour that little bit of oil that you do have into them, and that fixes everything. Now, this scenario that I just created was heavily dramatized, and not all of it is in the book, as we read, but it still gets to the point. Elisha helping this woman is a miracle. Now, it would be very easy to just stop here and chalk this story up as one of God's many, many miracles in the Bible. In fact, that's what most people do when they hear these kinds of stories. We know that God works miracles, but what else does this story tell us? Well, it tells us a lot about the ancient world and what matters to God and who matters to God and how God is present. For example, women, like the unnamed woman in this story, they were dependent upon their husbands for their income and their livelihood and for their protection. They needed a husband to be safe, to ensure they had enough food, and to protect them from people to take advantage of them. When a husband died, what was a woman really left to do? She lost her security, she lost her income, and she lost her status in the world, essentially. And in this instance, to top it all off, her husband had debts. So it makes a lot of sense that creditors would target women in the ancient society because they were easy victims, since they were left without any protection. So not only does the story tell us about the status of women, it also tells us about a society of slavery that slavery was an acceptable form of settling debts, which that thought makes most of us cringe. And I think it's safe to say that we're all pretty grateful we don't live in that world anymore. Thinking of all of these negative things like slavery and debt collections that we hear from the Second King story, I can't help but think of some memes. Now, memes are cool with the young crowd, But for those of us who aren't quite up to date, memes are usually images or sketches that have something kind of snarky written in these big, bold letters. They're kind of sort of like a comic, but less words. And there's only one of them, if that helps make sense. So these two memes come to mind when I think of this story. There's one where a toddler has gotten themselves stuck on a countertop and there's all kinds of mess, food everywhere surrounding them, and like sticky things all over their face. And the caption on that meme says, send help. And then another one comes to mind that usually surfaces on the internet and Facebook and Twitter around college finals time. This one is of a student who is in the library. There is a big stack of books around them. And then in front of them, There are these flashcards and these big scary graphs that I don't really know what they mean, and highlighters, all of the final things that make us students nervous. And the caption on that one also says, send help. Now, these memes are pretty funny and humorous, but I think they put a nice visual to the sense of being overwhelmed and not really sure what to do next, like I'm sure the woman was feeling in this legend from the Bible. So with not a lot of options left, and the woman feeling like she has nothing, she wanders to the gate of the city where she finds Elisha, the help that she was sending for. 
Now, it's not uncommon for prophets like Elisha to be at the gates of the city. Elisha was what we call a peripheral prophet who didn't really associate much with the kings. She tells Elisha that her husband was a man of God and that creditors are now surrounding her. And Elisha tells her to go and get as many containers as possible and pour that one jar of oil that she does have into these containers. Now, let's put ourselves into the woman's shoes at this point. I'd like to think that the woman probably thought Elisha was insane. Like, really? This is the help that she gets? To go and collect containers and fill them with the one or two drops of oil that she does have? I mean, her children are on the verge of slavery, after all. And he tells her to do something that doesn't really make a lot of sense? If she had any extra oil, she obviously would have already sold it to settle the debts. What was Elisha thinking? Surely he must have heard her when she said she only had a little bit of oil. She must have thought Elisha was crazy. But sure enough, because her options were running out, she does what Elisha says. And she sells the oil and her life is okay showing us that God works in mysterious ways and doesn't always necessarily overturn the rules of the society. Now, this story of something small becoming something plentiful reminds me of another story in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000 that we read. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 took place hundreds of years later in a totally different context. So, the disciples... Imagine them just getting off the boat. They're probably very tired, you know, maybe even a little seasick. And I can't imagine they're very wahoo A-plus for the day. So they're getting off the boat, and they're very frustrated. You know, a few months ago, we actually did this Feeding of the 5,000 story in our youth Sunday school, and we watched this clip from a, a big budget, a.k.a. not totally bad Bible movie, You never know with Bible movies. So in their depiction of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and his disciples come up to the shore, and they're greeted with what appears to be kind of a happy mob. They're really excited to see Jesus and experience Jesus' love, but they're pretty hungry. They've been there all day, and they forgot to pack lunch, and they forgot to pack dinner. And they'd also been portrayed as standing all day. Standing all day, it doesn't sound like it would drain you that much, but it makes you pretty tired. So they're probably not thrilled. The disciples know that they packed enough raw fish and flatbread for themselves, but they know there's not enough to to feed more than 12 of them. Also, in this familiar story, have you all ever thought about what that fish actually looked like? Well, in this depiction, they portrayed it as raw fish, which I thought was kind of funny because it made me think that Jesus liked sushi too. So, in these instances, I imagine the disciples to have this look on their face that screams, overwhelmed, and they're probably thinking, send help too. When Jesus told the disciples to go and get the food that they did have, what do they think would happen next? Did they think that one bite of bread would maybe be enough to fill everybody up? Did they think that Jesus was just going to eat all of the food that they did have? Did they think God would abandon them when they were out of options? Surely Jesus heard them when the disciples said they only had a little bit of food. 
Imagine a scenario like this one. It's Thanksgiving morning. You are waking up slowly and watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, thinking that you're going over to your parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. Then, around 11.30, your parents and your extended family ring your doorbell, and they wonder why your house doesn't smell like Thanksgiving. You're very confused because you thought you were going over to your mom's, but everyone else thought they were eating at your house. That's the kind of panic that I imagine the disciples to be feeling. It's like being asked for food when you haven't done any preparation to feed anybody. It's pretty stressful and kind of overwhelming. They're stressed and they have no idea how all of that is going to happen much like the woman had no idea how these few drops in one jar of oil was going to fix her life like she asked for. Last week, I went to a thing called General Assembly. Um, I won't bore you with a big, long explanation of what it is, but it's really cool, and you should read a little bit more about it. But if you can imagine um, a kind of Presbyterian Congress where the commissioners don't get paid and they pray a lot, That's pretty much the gist of it. Now, I was tasked with assisting committee number four. It was called The Way Forward. And they were tasked to do pretty much that, to think about the future of the denomination and what it might look like. It's pretty lofty for a committee of 70 strangers to talk about in three days. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't like to talk about my future or think about it. It makes me very nervous, and I get the sense that I'm not going to be good enough for whatever that means. And I think that this committee was feeling much these same ways in their two days. Because you see, instead of going through and dealing with the overtures that they had, like you would normally do, they did days of discernment. They heard a lot about the ecclesiology of the church, and they prayed a lot, and they discussed a lot. And... It started out that the people in the committee were getting kind of antsy because they have to finish their business by 5 o'clock on Tuesday. They were nervous, and they were thinking, send help. But the committee leadership had already planned for that help to be asked for by those times of discernment. And in the midst of their conversations and in their prayers, the help that they were asking for came. So sometimes when we ask for help, and in unlikely situations, it comes. So in all of these instances, especially the instance with the unnamed woman and the 12 disciples in the feeding of the 5,000, they were confused and troubled by their lack of ability to provide, to fulfill these lofty tasks ahead of them. Being asked for something that you know you can't deliver on is really hard. The woman knew that she couldn't pay the debts, and the disciples knew that they didn't have enough food. They also doubted God when they were running out of options. They carried that on their shoulders and didn't really think that God was going to be there for them. But it turns out that God was. And from these stories, it tells us that God cares about all of us. God cares about those on the outskirts of the society, like the widowed woman. And God cares about those who come to God, like the 5,000. So if we want to follow God, like we say we do, we should see the people on the fringes of our own society. 
we should stop living this life of scarcity and think about trying a life of abundance. And we should definitely remember that God is present and we can always ask for God to send help because that's what God does. God sends help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.